Hi, this is Paul, and uh, this is, I don't know, Ash, how, shall, how, how do you want to introduce yourself? Well, uh, let's see. My, uh, my name is Ashod Tumayans, and the reason I go by Ash is because nobody can say Ashod properly. Uh, <laughs> I get uh, I get all kinds of variations, but never never quite the right one. So so Ash it is. Uh, I, I am uh, I am someone who has moved a lot. Uh, I live in uh, the U.S. now, but I was born uh, and raised in Egypt, in Cairo, Egypt. And the reason I was born and raised in Cairo, Egypt, is because of the Armenian genocide. Uh, my um, great-grandparents immigrated there on both sides of my family from uh, Armenia fleeing, well, actually what is now Turkey, uh, fleeing the um, Armenian genocide. And uh, th there's a lot that happened, uh, but I think it's important to start there. And as a matter of fact, if you look at this picture right there, th this is my oldest surviving uh, ancestors that uh, were the picture was taken right before 1915. Uh, they both um, passed there. They were massacred. And I don't, I keep, my family lineage doesn't go any further back than that. And so I'm always interested in people's stories. And I really want to learn about, you know, what makes people tick and what the, what, what their ancestry has to do with how they act in life now, because I don't have that background. So it's, it's always made me really curious about history, as you can tell from the uh, pictures behind me. And so I, I moved to the U.S. about uh, twenty. Well, why don't you back up? Because probably ago. not everybody knows where Armenia is. They might have heard about the genocide. For many Americans, sure. that would be the only reference. So why don't you give a little bit of geography yeah. and history? Some will know Burn Power, who is in Georgia. Yeah. Um, but that's right. So Burn Power is in Georgia, and Armenia is the country right to the south of Georgia. Uh, I. Um, Armenia is a very small country now. There's only a couple million people that live there. It's surrounded by Azerbaijan to the east and uh, um, Iran to the south and Turkey to the west. But historically, Armenian lands encompassed a much larger region and was always sort of in the midst of turmoil and split between massive powers on either side. So on, on the Eastern side, it would have been Iranian, Sassanid, you know, uh, Persian. And on the Western side, it would have been Greek, Roman, Byzantian, and so on. So constant battles, constant heartache. I mean, just, you know, and, and really, I think, I think that history is really important for what Christians are going through in the West now. So I'll, I'll probably get into that more later. But what happened was uh, Ottoman Turkey uh, became a massive superpower and encompassed a very large region, all of Turkey, all the way into Armenia, a portion of Iran, and into, of course, uh, the Saudi Arabian region and North Africa, uh, basically. And they were a, a very strong, powerful um, uh, a dynasty for three, four hundred years until eventually what happened with modernity, uh, the, the young Turks took power. And of course, it started off as, you know, this is going to be a great reform. We're going to become European. And it very quickly turned into ethnic, uh, being separated along ethnic lines and massacres. And, and something that a lot of people don't appreciate about the Armenian genocide is that if, if someone knows about the Armenian genocide, they know that it was in 1915. 
But actually, the massacres and the entire genocide took a very long period of time from the late 1800s all the way to 1922, 1920s, let's say. So a very horrible, long, bloody period that was an absolute mess. Um, my great-grandfather left uh, Armenia uh, in the, the area of Severeg, which is sort of uh, at the border between Syria and Turkey today. And he left that area in 1914, went to Cairo and started a grocery store. He only um, managed to uh, live for a couple of years before he died, leaving behind a wife and four kids. My grandfather was the third oldest and he was only three years old. Um, and his shortly after his mom passed away, and so he's left an orphan. And what happened was the youngest son was adopted by a fam by a family, but the rest were sort of, you know, in different orphanages. And my grandfather happened to be living in a hospital, actually, in a, with a bunch of uh, Anglican nuns, nurses, uh, until he was 11 years old. And then his aunt, who, who also fled Ar Armenia through Greece, eventually made it down to Egypt and collected all the children together in one house. And then he went to school for a few days, had a normal childhood for you know a couple of a couple of years, I should say. And then when he was thirteen, he went to the uh, metalworks factory and worked there because he had to support the family. So very little schooling and a lot of work early on. Eventually, he became really good, really proficient, was a skilled. Uh, labor, was a skilled craftsman in metalworks, and finally uh, was able to be a foreman and teach others. These are all Egyptian people. He's teaching them, and then eventually, finally, purchases the business from the person who owned it before him. It was a, it was a Greek person. So, very horrible, horrible childhood. And the thing about my grandfather is that you know he was he was an absolute orphan uh very poor but he never had the attitude of hating god or you know being atheist or anti-god or you know how did god do this i and it's surprising to me how much people can go through suffering and still hold on to their you know respect and adoration and admiration of god but people who have it a pretty nice life can, you know, for a very small thing, can just kind of throw it all away and say, ah, oh, this, this God's horrible God. It's find it, find it really bizarre. Let's, let's pull back a little bit. Um, so you've got at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, you've got sort of the, sort of the slow motion erosion of the Ottoman empire. The right. Ottoman empire is kind of shrinking, you know, by the first world war, it was called the sick man of Europe. Um, you've, you're also in a colonial period. Well, well, what is, what was, who were the Armenian people? Why were they different from the people from, let's say, whoever was hunting them down? What were their motivations? And, um, and I think it's helpful because today when you say flee to Egypt, people's conceptualization of Egypt today is probably, oh, that's one of those Muslim countries in the Middle East. But of course, in 1915, in terms of the map, Egypt was a very different place up until obviously the the decolonialization that happens after the after the Second World War. Because of course, with Egypt, you're going to have Nasser, and I mean, I, I mean, all of these nations in the last 150 years 
have been going through a lot of transition and a lot of, see, this is where nomenclature is different, nationalities. Because when we talk about a nationality, Americans often sort of think of a nation state. But, you know, when we're talking, let's say, when you use the term genocide or Armenian people, you're talking about really a, a an ethno heritage, ethno-religious heritage that kind of goes through time. And so then when people become refugees to another place, in a sense, they they take their ethno-religious uh, heritage with them to this other place. But of course, the Egypt that we conceptualize today in 2024 is very different from the Egypt of 1915. So maybe you should flesh that out a little bit too, because I think that helps people get an understanding of the story and you know, now, of course, with Gaza and Israel, people just kind of look at these snapshots that are about this this old instead of seeing like, oh, my goodness, this whole region of the world has been bloodshed and I mean, and turmoil and lines. You know, it, it's completely different over the last hundred years. Sure. OK, so, OK, you are a history guy. All right. Uh, I'm trying to conserve. I know as you're much trying to conserve, possible we, we've and, got and time. I've got two hours so we can, right. we can take our time with this. All right. So this can, if, this because I be think fun. these things are okay. important because otherwise yeah. people view these stories, obviously, through the only filters that they have. And adding a little bit more context can sort of open people's minds to, oh, this stuff, you know, this, this stuff is quite universal. This is going to be fun. Okay. So Armenians are very, very proud about their Christian heritage. Let me start with that. So so Armenia is the first Christian nation to adopt, uh, is the first nation to adopt Christianity as the state religion. So Christian nationalism on steroids here. Okay. So 301 AD, okay, uh, the the there's a very interesting story, uh, history, uh, what's the word for it? Uh, his, historiography. I think it's, it's where like, you know, you don't know if half of it is made up or half of it is real kind of history. And so hagiography. hagiography, thank you. So there's very interesting history of uh, our, uh, the, there's a King Tortatis and he is sort of a independent king, but he's got relations with the Greeks and he has this uh, a problem of the Sassanids trying to take territory. So there's a lot of tension going on there. And then and then this guy, Gregory, St. Gregory the Illuminator, shows up, and uh, supposedly his father killed this king's father, but he did he, but nobody knows this. Very, you know, it's a very hush-hush. And so this guy becomes Christian because his his dad is now murdered. So he he goes to this uh Greek, it's a, I think Syria somewhere, and he becomes Christian and he becomes a uh, an evangelist, and he comes back to Armenia with his group of people and he's evangelizing, and finally he's told to worship the idol for the king, and he's like, No, thank you. And they put him in this uh place called Horvirab. It's a it's a hole in the ground, and I've been down in there a couple of times, and it's you know, he lives there for 15 years, and this lady comes and drops you know food food for him sort of like the raven you know and 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 the uh, and then eventually there the the king Tartatis goes mad uh, this is should sound familiar to you and he starts to act like a wild boar and then the the sister gets a vision and then brings Tartati, brings uh, gregory the illuminator out of the hole and says you need to take him to preach to the gospel to him so he preaches to him and he's finally converted and he re restores his his uh, uh, faculties and he says okay Jesus is my God now. And then they go through the process of 
um, Christianizing the whole area. And this is really fascinating because what happens, and th yeah, this is really fast. So what happens is you don't just, you know, say, okay, um, we are going to start to have Bible studies and we're going to have, you know, we're going to start to have uh, street corner evangelism. No, no, no. You, you, I'm sure that some of that was happening, but what you really do is you go to the priests of the temples, right? And you say, okay, so this is your land, because that's how it, it used to be done back in the day, that the, the family was the priest of this particular deity, and the lineage, the entire lineage would continue to be priests. And so the, the king and, the, of course, Gregory the Illuminator would go and say, okay, here's the deal. We can either kick you out and take this and convert it to a church, or you can convert to Christianity and start to have Christian services in this particular building. What do you think? <laughs> So they they took they they of course a lot of them start to uh, convert to Christianity because they want to keep the business they want to run the the family you know lot with the with the building and you know we'll, we'll change the gods inside and we'll we'll be good to go you know everybody will be happy and when you start doing this and and all the you know and then we're we're crafting identity now and and I and a Christian identity and and so we are separating ourselves away from the Zoroastrian religion which is what the Sassanids were worshiping and very early on this is like 350 something uh I believe no four oh man maybe uh 425 yeah 425 AD what happens is the powerful king of the Sassanids comes and says to the Armenians, all right, listen, you guys are going to have to be Zoroastrians. Enough with this Christian stuff. And then and then there's a story written about how uh, the Mamigonians, which is a, a clan, a certain warrior clan, says, no, this Christianity is our, part of our identity now. We're not, we can't do this. And so they, all the, all the, the Zoroastrian priests that have been shipped over to, you know, re-educate uh, Armenians into the proper way of worship were famously kicked out, a lot of them under, you know, after heavy beating. And uh, there, was a, there was a war and Vartan Mamigonian was, uh, uh, you know, martyred in this war. And these people are willing to fight to defend their faith. Yeah. Very early religious war. And one of the things that really confuses me about the American Christianity type of thing is that we pretend that stuff like that never happens, that, that we never had to have a Christian war. And here's a very, very early one, you know, 4, 4, 425 AD and, and successive ones, by the way, it, did, it didn't just end with Vartan, one war and we're good to go. They actually lost that battle, uh, but it was continual fighting for keeping the Armenian identity and also very importantly, a Christian identity. And, you know, I mean, and this, this is a very uh, serious history where the St. Gregory, the illuminator, his son uh, uh, would have participated in the Nicene council representing the Armenians. Okay. So, you know, we're talking some like serious heavy hitters here. Yeah. And there's a very interesting story of, um, um, you know, how the Armenian alphabet was invented or, you know, inspired and so on. And so there's a, a priest who's studying all these languages and he's trying to create a language for Armenians and a written language for Armenians because, of course, they want to keep the scriptures and make the scriptures available to the Armenian people. Because the, the, what's the language used primarily? Greek. Yep. That's the language of the court. Um, and so they, there's a story we learned as little kids in our Armenian school that, you know, the, the 
Mesrob Mashtots, that was his name. He had a, a dream, and in the dream, he saw the hand of God writing letters on the wall, and he woke up and he started copying those letters, and that's how we have the Armenian alphabet. <laughs> well, it's great that these are, these are, I mean, this is what kids learn in school. I mean, this is the, I mean, in the Peugeot channel, they have this universal history series that they yes. know. And this is the universal history of Armenia. This I is can't wait coach. for that one. Yeah, this is the well. Maybe, maybe Jonathan will have to have Jan to share the uh, the history of the Armenians. But this is, I mean, this is great because this is the this is the identity. These are the people. The faith is integrated into it. Um, it's it's that this is who Armenians are. This is what it means to be this people. Yes. So you are surrounded by, you know, um, pagan gods. You're, you're you've got the byzantine christianity on the other side and of course they're working through making christianity more of part of the you know option of religions uh at that time and you've got the councils and so on uh and then if, uh, let's fast forward to um uh, chalcedon so chalcedon happens and of course the orthodox you know have that schism of the oriental orthodox which uh, so armenia um uh, the Egyptian, the Copts of Egypt, and the Ethiopians, and I think there's a few others, but those are the major players. They say, ah, we don't really need to do the whole Chalcedonian thing. It's already been settled. And then, of course, the uh, Constantinople, people in Constantinople and people in Rome say, no, 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 we, we definitely need to do that. And, it, it, you know, it's really interesting how the Coptic and the Armenian perspective of what happened is very different from the, you know, Eastern perspective, in the, the, um, the, or uh, just Eastern Orthodox perspective, and of course, then the Western perspective. And, and what I find really interesting is that the it's very easy for a lot of Protestant and you know evangelical and and Eastern Orthodox you know writers to just dismiss uh, the the Chalcedonian kind of schism as sort of like ah oh, a bunch of heretics. But when you really look into it and you look at the history from the Armenian perspective, uh, there's a lot of evidence that a lot of the people who agreed with Chalcedon and the people who rejected Chalcedon sh still share the same monastery that, for, for like 50, 60, 100 years after. And uh, there, we have a very interesting history of, of having a Byzantium king who, uh, what was famous back then was chariot racing. So they were done with the gladi gladiator stuff, but they were still doing the chariot races and how the, there was a team that was very good that was Chalcedonian. And there was another team that was <laughs> not very good. That was, uh, or no, also very good, but rivals that were a different color. One was blue, one was green. I don't remember the colors. And what happened was the, uh, the emperor really liked the blue team, didn't like the green team. And the blue team happened to be the Chalcedonians, not the anti. So therefore, all right, we're going to have to, you know, uh, get rid of the uh, silly Lakers out of here and, you know, and so on. <laughs> so fascinating, just fascinating perspective. And of course, there's a lot of work in trying to, you know, restore that and recover relationships and so on. But but it's an interesting topic that a lot of the people who are converting to orthodoxy are not really talking about. And I kind of find it fascinating that a lot of people are converting to different forms of orthodoxy. Some are going Coptic, some are going, you know, and and it's like, well, what about, Cal have you discussed Chalcedon? No, no, not really. I don't really, I don't even know what the whole thing was about, you know, <laughs> which is really fascinating. And, and so... And so you have all of this happening. And of course, then finally, Islam shows up. And, and I let me just, this is really important. When Islam uh, shows up, what are the Christian nations that are most impacted by the rise of Islam? Turns out to be the anti-Chalcedonians. Really? Well, think about it. 
Where, huh. where did Islam spread from and where did it spread to? And the, the entire area, if I could, if, if this is sort of the the Mediterranean Sea, that entire entire area to the, the, the east of the Mediterranean Sea, that was all, uh, you know, a non-Chalcedonian Christians. And what happened was there was a lot of Historically speaking, there was a lot of persecution from the Chalcedo from the from the head of power in Byzantium and Constantinople. There was a lot of persecution against the anti-Chalcedonians and a lot of oh. prejudice against them. And so they weren't getting politically speaking, they weren't getting their fair share in Alexandria and in Armenia and those areas. And so they were like, maybe the Muslims will be nicer to us. And that's part of the reason why they let them in with open arms. And there was no major, you know, uh, initially there were no major wars against them. And we, when I was growing up in Egypt, we learned about the history of the the opening of Islam, they call it in Arabic, uh, and, and how, you know, Islam was was accepted with open arms by the people that they invaded. And, and a lot of it has to do with the Chalcedon issue. So interesting. that's an interesting part of history. I've never heard any of this. This is fascinating. So, so now you have an environment where uh, you have Christians who are now living under the rule of Islam, and and there's a lot of there's some interesting videos I can send you about the the history of that and and how um, during the time of of Islamic spread and when they first took over Jerusalem, finally the the head of the Byzantine uh, the pope the 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 emperor of of Byzantium was actually an Armenian guy. Interesting. <laughs> um, Oh yeah, oh yeah, and so, and so you know he he tries to fight them off, and but then he's dealing with uh, with all kinds of stuff, the Balkans and so on. So so now we have an issue of Armenia Armenians who are Christians in surrounded by Muslim entities and powers, and we, and same thing with Christians in Egypt, and of course you have this big pressure of well. You can keep your religion. However, you have to pay us a jizya. It, it's it's the, the tax for right. taking care of you for not being Muslim. But if you convert to Islam, you don't have to pay that anymore. And so if you were poor, you kind of... Everybody likes a tax break. You know, it seems like an easy thing if you're not all that, all that invested. Exactly. So, so you know, it was a very interesting, very interesting time and very interesting writing about how do you how do you maintain your Christian identity while also being under the rule of a foreign, you know, uh, a, a different God? And is it a different God? Is it not a different God? Are we worshiping the same God or are we not? You know, all those questions. It's been going on for you know fourteen hundred years, yeah. and and so you you've got the you've got Armenians living in the Ottoman Empire. Now the Ottoman Empire eventually, when finally they kind of take over covers a really large area like i said geographically speaking and as the like you said the ottoman empire is sort of you know uh, becoming weaker politically and, and militarily what happens is a lot of those islamic nations start to form their own sort of separate you know powers yep. and not not many of it had actually much to do with with ethnicity of like we are egyptian so to speak so for instance egypt um, uh, seceded from the Ottoman Empire, ruled by a uh, ruler. His name was Muhammad Ali, and he was from Turkey. He was an Egyptian, and so he says, "You know what? I don't really want to have to pay tax to the big guy in right. Istanbul. I'm just going to say, I'm on my own. Yeah. I don't have to pay you. I don't think you can hurt me." And that's basically what happened. 
That's a very the, old story. I mean, in terms yeah. of the imperial vassal arrangement, that's the constant. I mean, you read it about it in, in you know, sort of the end of the Judean kingdom. I mean, right, it's all right. about, oh, we're sick of paying the, the tribute, so we're going to stop paying tribute, then we'll see if he comes down, if he can muster it. I mean, that's just, that's just the name of the game for the imperial vassal relationship. Exactly. And so when you're when you're a smaller power, you pit the big powers against each other and you try to take the best deal you can from either sides, which can be helpful for you in the short term, but then the long term can create a lot of problems. Yep. And um and, and so eventually what happens is that a lot of Armenians were in Egypt at the time, you know, and, and as a matter of fact, the prime minister of uh of Egypt at the time of Muhammad Ali's reign was Armenian. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and and so Armenians were primarily craftsmen involved in building all kinds of things. And one of the things they're very famous for building are actually mosques. Uh, if you go to Egypt today, you will see a lot of a lot of mosques built by and they have the plaques with the name an IAN ending, an Armenian guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and, um, you know, uh, the fruit um, mandarins. Yeah. OK, so so. This is something Armenians like to say. Like Armenians always will tell you, like, here are all the wonderful inventions and how Armenians are the root of all of them. Uh, so, <clears throat> so, so basically, the fruit, the man Mandarin, came from India to Egypt, and the person who brought that fruit to Egypt was an Armenian guy who was the head of agricultural ministry at the time of Muhammad Ali's reign, and his name was Yusuf Effendi. Yusuf Effendi, Joseph Effendi. And so to this day, that fruit in Egypt is called Yustafendi. <laughs> yeah, fun stuff like that. Yep. So then Armenians exist. They have a community from way before the Armenian genocide. Okay. But then And they even have a diaspora because there's again, a diaspora all over all over right. the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Because it's helpful to remember that part of what happens with empire is that one of, one of the empire is a very interesting thing. Because one of the things empire affords is, of course, diasporas. So, for example, the we'll use biblical stories because a lot of people can recognize that when the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians, people move out throughout the Assyrian Empire. Of course, the Assyrian yes. Empire collapses. You have the Babylonians to replace them. The um the southern kingdom, Judea, the temples destroyed, they spread out amongst the Babylonian Empire. And they know you have just empire after empire coming into this part of the world. And those empires mean that people can leave sort of their ethno-national homelands and begin to work in other places. That happens for the Jews, happens for the Armenians, happens for a great number of people. Happens today, for example, you've got Russians, the Russian Empire, which is kind of the Soviet Union. You had Russians all throughout this empire. And of course, when the, the Soviet Union collapses and you have Russia again, then people have to figure out, do I go back? Do I stay? What's it going to be? I mean, these, these are long, these are very perennial stories. And and one of the one of the weaknesses of this Ottoman system and even all these uh, nas small nationalities that are creeping up and uh, seceding from the Ottoman Empire, what's what's hap what's what, what happens with with the small villages and the small towns and the cities and such? There, there's no de democratic process by which these people are ruled and governed. So what happens is just like there's a vassal king, there's also a vassal head of the mayor, a vassal a governor, a vassal. Everybody's a, a vassal all down through the chain. And what happens is the king says, we need money for the war. I need money for a new jacuzzi. I need whatever. Right. And so then 
you just collect tax and keep some for yourself and send it up the chain. It's tax farming. And and it's, to a certain degree, indulgences. I mean, people sometimes same idea. Right. gripe about the, you know, they go to the Vatican and say, look at this beautiful building. You know what it cost them? Uh, Germany. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's what the building costs. <laughs> right. Right. And so and so the villages that that my ancestry are, are from, uh, what what happens is the the rulers who were assigned um, were Kurds, were other Turkish people, were you know different ethnicities, and so and so what happens is unfortunately the uh, the the Kurds are taking advantage. And uh, by the way, there's a if if you're interested, there's a, a very interesting novel written in the late 1800s uh, uh, called The Fool by Rafi. Rafi is basically the Armenian Dostoevsky. Okay, he he I mean he kind of captures the national kind of essence of what it means to be Armenian. And it's a very fascinating book, but it talks about how, you know, Armenians are su suffering under the yoke of the Kurds and the Turks and, and the, the unfairness. And of course he's getting ideas from the West about democracy and about modernity yeah. and so on. And yeah. he wants, he's, he's saying, why isn't the church helping people develop and how, why aren't the intellectual classes of Armenians helping the, the community, the villages, the, the small farming communities develop those rights and, and, and learn the technologies and and learn the political systems so that they can govern themselves better, so they can have better representation, so that there's less injustice in the world. And unfortunately, the the religious head. Uh, so in Armenia, there's a Catholic cause, sort of like a pope, basically, and and bishops, right? A very very strong, uh, you know, Oriental Orthodox kind of structure, you know, very similar to the Russian Orthodox or the Greek Orthodox. Uh, but the you know all of those people were essentially just saying, oh, live in peace. It's okay. Cause you know, there's what political power really is there to do anything. And part of where things started to go South for Armenians was actually when the Balkan states who were also part of the Ottoman empire started to talk about, I want to go independent. Let's talk about a Serbian identity. And then the Greeks also were part of the Ottoman empire and they want to talk about, you know, Greek. And, and actually in 18, in the 1820s, ever since the 1820s, when John Quincy Adam was, was uh, head of state, the state department in, in the U S uh, the, the Americans were, you know, saying hey, we got to help the Greeks. I mean, all, Seneca and all the, all the people we like to read about Cicero, those, we got to help these people. They want independence from Greece. And John Quincy Adams goes, mm, I don't know. I don't, we shouldn't probably meddle in other people's affairs. Let them figure it out for themselves. So this goes way back. And of course the Muslim Turkish community is very suspicious of any, you know, Christian minorities who want to have more and more independence and more and more self-determination. And everything bubbles up until you have the Armenian genocide, where they say, you know, with World War One and with Russia being against the Ottoman Empire and the, the Young Turks, I guess, at the point, at that point, Armenia is sort of in between us and Russia and they're Christians and the Russians are Christians. So they probably might help each other. So, you know, the best thing to do is just to eliminate the Armenian problem. Now, now, when it comes to, let's say, a genocide, um, I mean, even though we we have an understanding about total depravity, it, it is it, it is not a small thing to kill people, and it is not a small thing to kill people in mass. And I mean, part of what is remarkable about the 19th and the 20th century, although obviously these things are practiced earlier, 
I mean, you have uh, you have rise of technology that make it via our machines. It's easier to kill people than it ever was. You don't need a knife. You don't need a sword. And maybe you can starve them by destroying their fields. I mean, there's lots of ways to subjugate and eliminate people. But um, the so was it a was it was it for the land? Was it just for the geopolitical? And then what was the methodology used? Obviously, I mean, even though most people, when they think about the the Holocaust, think about the death camps, um, you know, Timothy Snyder makes the point that the vast majority of Jews that were killed by the Nazis were shot. I mean, mm -hmm. the bullet was the primary bullet mass graves. I mean, this is what happened in Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, and, you know, that whole area. Um, yeah. well, what was what was the situation with, with the Armenian genocide? What was just... What did they, armies, um, what did they do? Yeah, wow. Okay, so most of, there's a lot of uh, survivor accounts written of the Armenian genocide. You have one of them. Yeah, yep. <laughs> right over and, there. Yeah, there are a lot of survivor accounts written of the Armenian genocide. And generally what the consensus is and the different stories that you hear of people who survived this this hellish episode, what happens is the, the uh, again, Remember the the vassal powers, right? The the head of the village or whatever would yep. say, okay, the military needs young men to fight. There's war coming with Russia and with Germany, with uh, actually Turkey was with Germany, with Europe. And so we need to uh, get young men to help with the military. So they would go to the the heads of the village, the, the village fathers, and they would go to the priests and they would go to the, uh, they would go to the leadership of the village and would say, bring us your young men between yep. this age and that age. And of course they would take them and have them work in mines or have them work in, they, they wouldn't give them any guns. They would have them work in mines or they would take them out of the town and just shoot them point blank. Wow. And then you only have, you only have the women and children and the old men and the women right. left. And so then they would tell them, okay, time for you to deport. We are going to, for safety, there's military coming, there's military stuff happening. So we need to get the civilians out of here for their safety and protection. Where are we going? Well, don't ask questions. And you, you know, start walking and you walk for a long time. And there's an area called Der Zor. Um, and if you are in Boston ever, or ever go to Boston, or anybody listening goes to Boston, there's an Armenian museum in Boston. And there's a section where it, it, it depicts this awful, just awful state of Armenians uh, just doing what they're told, being good citizens and respecting authority and saying, okay, we'll go. And of course there were some young men who said, no, heck no, they're going to, I know exactly what they're going to do. So they, yeah, word they, gets they, out, word gets out. So they, they basically, you know, uh, go up to the mountains and protect themselves. And, you know, when I say mountains, I mean more like hills. This is of course, after all, plain country further East was, uh, where Armenia is today is much more mountainous um, than the plain country country that we're, we're our ancestry is from, and so they go up to the hills and they try to protect themselves in monasteries and so on and so forth. But in in the you know during this time, what's fascinating is that there's a lot of evangelism work going on from German Christians and from Americans. Hmm. So in the Ottoman Empire, there, there's uh, there there are all these um, schools, all of these orphanages set up. Because, of course, that culture doesn't have, you know, foster child or taking family, you know, it's you're on your own, kid. And, and so there's all these all these institutions that are built up. And, of course, the book that you have talks about the struggle of how does an Armenian mission or an American missionary handle, you know, going against 
the political power, but help the Armenian Christian that he just, you know, helped baptize just two weeks before, you know, how does all this work? And, and, and the fascinating dichotomy of trying to evangelize to people who are already Christians, hmm. maybe in name only versus hmm. evangelizing to the Muslims. Hmm. And so, and so you're, cause you know, it's harder to evangelize to a Muslim person cause it's, you know, you know, you're not supposed to do it, but when, but it's easier to say, Oh, these are my Christian brothers. I'm here for the Armenians. Yeah. So that's a fascinating, just whole fascinating thing. Anyway. So the, so eventually what happens is, you know, there are some revolts that happen. There are some political organizations that prop up to try to basically, you know, uh, fight against the Turks. But at this point you you've lost all ability to gather any you know weaponry any any serious army and so on so so a very small very mountainous region of armenia was able to be protected and that's armenia proper today but that's a lot to do with topography a lot to do with being close to russia and all of those all of those uh, issues i hope i was better in, in my oh no, it was army. good that was good so you're so let's get back to the personal history again so you're you're um you're great Great grandfather goes to Egypt. Yes. Did I get the right number of greats in there. Okay. That's correct. My great grandfather goes to Egypt. So they and... get out of they get out, they, they see what's going on with all of this stuff. And it's like, and we got to get out of here. So they get out of there. He dies young. You're, you know, then suddenly, of course, this is, I mean, all three of my four grandparents, all of whom were born in America. Um, just barely born in America. I mean, they, they they didn't have more than eighth grade education because at eighth grade it's right into the mills and start right. working right away. Yeah, similar. Yeah, and so and and you know why Egypt? Because it was all they could do. You know, there, a yeah. lot of Armenians ended up in Lebanon. Lebanon took a lot of Armenians. I mean, there's um, maybe even to this day there's a, there's over several hundred thousand Armenians in Lebanon, and and a lot of them you know are able to hold political power and be representatives in Congress and in, in their parliament. So. Syria also um, took in a lot of Armenians, and, and Egypt not as much, of course, because of just distance. Uh, Jerusalem, there's an Armenian uh, Armenian quarter in Jerusalem, and this goes way back. Has nothing to do with the Armenian genocide. Way, way back. But again, that's a small piece of land, relatively speaking. And and a lot of Armenians ended up in France. A lot of Armenians ended up in the U.S., in Australia, Canada, just anywhere they could go. And and for a lot of Armenians, Egypt was never the final destination. It was always just a pit stop until further west. Hmm. It just so happened that because my grandfather was an orphan, he didn't have the family relationships and the context to be able to keep going. Yep. And he made a life for himself. You know, yep. he was he was fairly successful fairly early on. Now, yep. one of the things that he did, which in this corner of the internet, when we talk about meaning and finding meaning in life, one of the things that he did, it's really interesting. When he was in his late twenties, just established as a business owner, let's say, he chooses to build a mausoleum for the Armenian community so that if anybody is poor and doesn't have any burial um, site to bury their families, they could use the mausoleum that he dedicated to the church and for the poor people of, Arme of, of Armenians living in Egypt because he doesn't know where his mom and dad are buried. Hmm. They're poor. Yeah. Uh, probably yeah. a mass grave somewhere. Yeah. And so, you know, that always bothered him. And yeah. he wanted to make sure that others had the opportunity to visit their loved ones. Yeah. 
And the other thing that he did was, uh, you know, when he was an orphan, he was barefoot for most of the time. And he uh, was always embarrassed by that, even as a little mm. kid. And so every year he would give to all the Armenian children in the community that he would give them shoes. Wow. Wow. And, and he would buy shoes every year. And this is the time of now, again, Armenia, uh, Egypt is going through a lot of change. Yep. There's a lot of, you know, there's the, the king, the kingdom, the Arme the Egyptian kingdom is, is falling. The, there's the revolution with Nasser, as you, as you said, yep. taking over and, yep. um, and, and <clears throat> Egypt is all of a sudden, you know, leaving the West and siding more with Russia. And so, of course, when you were siding with Russia, you don't really get a lot of stuff from them. And so, there, you know, import-export problems and, and there's just nothing in Egypt. So it's very difficult to be generous at this time. And, yeah. he, you know, it, it was a way for him to gain some status, perhaps. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't yeah. want to, I don't, I mean, he doesn't, he's, he seems like a really nice guy, and I, I don't want to say that he only did it for the sake of trying to get some, you know, fame and and be like something significant in the community. But there, there I mean, there is something to, yeah. you know, generosity will get you, will get you Luke, some name recognition. Luke sixteen, as a recent <laughs> Randos conversation reminded yes. me, use worldly wealth to gain friends. It's right there in Luke sixteen. Right, <laughs> a little wisdom nugget from Jesus. That's right. But you know, the thing about our. Um, the thing about that environment that I grew up in is that everybody assumes that they are Christian because they are Armenian. Okay, let's let's locate this. What you're talking, so you're younger than I am. So you're growing up in the 80s, 90s? 81. 81. 81. Is what I was. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you here I graduated high school. This is, this is getting serious now. Um so yeah, so you've got, you know, you've got Nasser, you've got Ar I mean Egypt Egypt, has, there's there's a lot of interesting history that people will know a little bit more of now, in yeah. terms of, you know, you, it's post-colonial. You have the you have the Suez Crisis where the United States basically tells e England and France to back off, and right. so Egypt, you know, in Egypt, it's, again, in this this is during the Cold War. You've got these countries that are sort of playing this one side off against the other you know if we side with the soviet union we can get some military and stuff and so you've got you know wars with israel back and forth and you're growing up you know with all of this stuff and then eventually there's going to be the you know the in the 80s then there's going to be this peace under arafat but remember arafat is not arafat it's um Saddam. Uh, yeah and but then he dies very quickly right he but, dies Mubarak <laughs> takes over. Yeah. yes and mubarak is is sort of a He's a dictator, but you know, part of the thing that people don't understand in that part of the world is it might be a dictator, but if it's less chaotic, a lot of people will go for that bargain. They'll, you know, if as long as they're not repressing me too bad, you know, people will often opt for order rather than chaos, or at least you know, order rather than bloodshed. So you've got Mubarak; he's in he's in power. And um, but you've also got, you know, you've also got sort of the rise of Islamism that's going on throughout the Arab world as well. And Egypt, a lot of these dictators are trust kind of keep a lid on that because they don't want to see what happened in Iran. <laughs> you know, what happened to the Shah? They don't want to see that happen to them. Well, I, I think Egypt was going through Egyptians were going through their own meaning crisis as well. Uh, but I think that had a lot to do with the rise of Islamism, because I think in the, you know, Egypt, Egyptian cinema rivaled Hollywood. It was it was the sec for for a while in in the forties to sixties in that era, it, Egyptian cinema was was you know like 
neck and neck with Hollywood as far as quality of production. This is back in like black and white, you know, movies and just amazing, amazing actors, just real quality, real quality work, real artists. And but but then what happened was with nationalization, with the with the whole like more socialist kind of move, all of those frivolous things, and of course all the 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 drain that happened of you know people who are wealthy people with means decided to leave i don't i don't want this headache and and so a lot of the talent left um you know a great example you know omar sharif yeah you know you know that you know that the famous actor you know so uh that's an example of someone who said thanks i I think i'm heading out of here you know um (laughs) and and i think the what happened was egyptians were kind of looking for you know, what's interesting growing up in Egypt is that you always look at everything around you in Egypt was more glorious in the past than it is today. Oh, which which is a very weird kind of way to, to grow up, you know, where yeah. you look at the mosques and you're like, yeah, the, that mosque was built, you know, a thousand years ago. Look how glorious it must have been. And look what, what state it is in today. Look at the pyramids. Look at the all the ancient, you know, ancient Egyptian stuff. Everything is just so glorious, and they 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 like to call Egypt the cradle of civilization. You know, the 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 place where it all started, and all. You know, but then, look at everything around you, and everything's a mess, and pollution, and and everything's crowded and dirty, and just it's not not pleasant to live in, really, honestly, unless you're super wealthy, and and. And they just always look at the past as like, that's proof of our significance. And not just the past as in like two weeks ago, the past is in a thousand years ago or more, you know, which is, yeah, very interesting. But my grandfather is growing up. He's becoming established in his Armenian community. And I have to, I have to explain something about the Armenian community. It's a very kind of insular community um, and and it wasn't just the only one. There were a lot of Greeks. There was a very strong Jewish community in Egypt, and of course in the fifties uh, with Israel rise and and you know, anti-Semitism, they they a lot of them uh, left Egypt and went to Israel. So all of those things, um, all of those small communities started to sort of get smaller and smaller. To where by the time it was my generation it was maybe about five thousand armenians in egypt wow. uh while during my grandfather's time it was maybe over a hundred thousand yeah and during my dad's time it was maybe in the 50 60 thousand yeah. range so you're constantly kind of looking at all of the infrastructure that is built for armenians and it's much larger than it needs to be for the current number of armenians right really bizarre you know you go to an armenian school and it's built for a thousand students and there's only 150 yeah well you, people in the christian form church will understand this in a lot of places because you go to this, this this massive church and it's there's you know a couple hundred people there and it's like why do we have all these pews well it's because yes. 40 years ago these pews were full oh why aren't they full anymore and then reads questions so but in this case you've got people basically leaving for greener pastures they have a sense that how much of a future do we really have here? Maybe there's a better future in Israel. There's a better future in America. So people are people yeah. are emigrating. Right. And of course, after the uh, First World War with... with oh, no, excuse me. After the Second World War, when uh, Soviet Russia is really struggling for people and manpower and a lot of... A lot, I mean, millions dead, right? 
uh, they start to go to the communities uh, in the diaspora of the Armenians and the Latvians and the you know all the different areas of the of the sort yeah. of eastern Eastern European countries and saying you know guys come back Russia is wonderful USSR is amazing we will help you we will provide and and there's a very interesting story of my mom's side of the family uh, deciding to take a chance and going to the USSR. And the deal was because they knew that they were going to be watched and all the, you know, uh, can't really write freely to each other back and forth and so on. They said, we will send you a picture of a photo of us when we settle in Armenia, which is now part of the USSR. And if we're doing well, we will all be standing in the photo. And if we're not doing well so that you don't come, we will all be sitting in the picture. They get a picture of all of them laying on the floor. (laughs) And what happened was what the Russians did, they took all of these immigrants and they took the men and they took them to the Gulag and they took them to Siberia and they had them work on infrastructure and away from their families. And it was an absolute mess. And wow. my 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 mom finally met up with the, her relatives who had moved to Armenia in the early 2000s and just the level of poverty and the level of just absolute, I mean, just horrible life of no quality of life of just being so darn poor all the time was just very palpable, very, very, wow. very hard to kind of process for my mom and my dad. Yeah. So, so is there is there a sense of sort of a sort of global Armenianism in that there's there's you know you've you've just got people all around the world but there's kind of yeah. a network between them Absolutely there is and and a lot of it it's it's not just Armenian it's more politically derived so Armenia as a category is too big and so you have the connections through the small political to the smaller political entity and and that's something that is uh you know, really interesting about the Armenian community in Egypt. Uh, you know, we had a we had one Armenian church, the Armenian Apostolic uh, Church, and and that was for the entire community. And then there was a, a Catholic Armenian church, it was for the Catholic Armenians, uh, much much smaller community sub community. But there was also the clubs, and the clubs were the social gathering place. But those clubs were formed. Uh, based on political party lines. So my side of the family was part of the Armenian Revolutionary Federation. Okay, so much more uh, closest to conservative, let's say. Okay, wanting Armenian uh, Revolutionary Federation, wanting Armenian liberation, Armenian freedom, get back our lands, very patriotic and so on. And then you have uh, two other political um, factions, uh, one much smaller than the other, but the rival would be a more, let's say, uh, liberal kind of, you know, entity. And what's really interesting about when I kind of came up in the in the early um, 80s was that there were a lot of kids who were about seven to 10 years older than me. And then there was my brother who was four years younger than me and a girl who was two years younger than me. And that's it. <laughs> so I had very few people to play with yeah. you know, growing up. There was maybe one other guy who was a couple of years younger than me as well, but would only come once in a while. So it wasn't like a constant you know, buddy. So very small network of friends and all of the people that, that were, um, you know, had stronger community, had a stronger sense of belonging were, you know, another generation older than me. It was hard for me to obviously connect with them. So how, how did you, how did you leave Egypt? How, what, how did that happen? Oh wait! Before I say that, there's okay. there's more there's more things that are important. Um, okay. 
in the in the leaving Egypt. So what happens is um, I grew up in in an environment where we have a shared Armenian school, and in my class there's only five people, including me, uh, two guys and three girls. And the class before me, there's only three girls. Now, when we first started in kindergarten, my class was about nine people. And the class before me was seven. But a lot of these families had started to slowly yeah. immigrate yeah. excessively over into the U.S. and Canada and such. Yep. And, and what happens is, uh, so I was basically what we, what you would consider homeschooled, essentially. You know, we just happened to dress up, you know, in a, um, in a kind of funny looking Navy suit and, and um, gray slacks and uh, like a white and blue shirt and a tie and, you you know. Uh, but it's, it was essentially homeschooling, and we had we stayed in the same in the same uh, uh, classrooms, and the teachers would rotate. So it's not the American system where you have to leave the classroom to go to someplace else for the other class. You, you, the teachers come to you, and um, this this matters in me leaving Egypt. So my earliest sort of uh, religious experiences, or or you know, relationship with Christianity, let's say. Is I show up at um, I show up at, at school, and we we're moving from kindergarten to first grade, and we get to the there's a different building for first grade to high school is a different building, so it's a very big psychological you know move, and we go to this um, new build new building, and everybody runs and races at the beginning of class to go to sit down at their desks because it's every man for himself, every woman for himself. And we sit down and we get our stuff ready and organized. And I noticed that the girls that, you know, the, the two like really smart girls in class are starting to have all these images on the top of their desk, just laid religious images, you know, Jesus carrying the lamb, the mother and child, you know, all these different images. And, I, and I'm like really intrigued. I, I know what they are. I, you know, my family isn't particularly religious. My grandfather is very much so in a very simplistic form. I woke up to this girl and I said, what's going on with these pictures? What's, what's the deal? And she goes, oh, well, my mom and my mom and dad gave this to me. And they said, you know, if, if you have a hard quiz or a hard question, you don't know how to answer. You just look at those images and pray and, and God will give you the strength to, you know, do well in school. And, I, and I'm first grade. I'm a kid, right? Okay. This is, so I go, I want that power. I want that juice. <laughs> I got to get me some of those pictures. So I go, I go home and I said, mom, I, I got to tell you, there's these, there's this power. Okay. Where you like, you get these pictures and then you pray to them. And then like, you do really well in school. I got to get this. Um, and she gives me some of her stuff uh, that she has, you know, from her like sock drawer or whatever. And, and I, I look at them and I'm like, no, this doesn't have the juice. This isn't, this isn't real. I want, I want like good quality stuff, you know, like you could tell. Like the, you know, don't give me an image with a with a wooden cross on it or like an image with like some a rock formation. Don't no, give me like I want the face of Jesus. I want the the angels. I want I want the whole thing. So so we would go to this. Um, my mom took me to this uh, Catholic uh, church a couple blocks away from our house, and and next to this there's a the, the church. There's a small little kiosk with a bunch of books and tchotchke stuff. And of course, all those little cards, you know, that people keep in their wallets or their pockets or whatever with usually prayers in the back of them. And I, you know, get a whole set of them, you know, now I've got like my set of like top five, you know, and my mom's like enough. <laughs> Come on. 
<laughs> and so I lay this out on my table. Now all of us in class are doing this. You know, we got our, you know, and, and the teachers walk in and they look at all of our tables and they're just, they don't say anything, but they're like, man, this is a religious bunch. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then we kept doing this for years until we get to about middle school. And this one guy, Mr. Tom, uh, Mr. Thomas, he he comes into class and he's he's not a teacher. He's a he's someone who's who was a business owner but wanted to try teaching and you know having fun with his life kind of thing. So he shows up. He's teaching us Armenian and he sees all of these images on our desks and he goes, "What are you guys doing? What is this?" And we tell them. Tell them, look, we pray to this, and then we have power to do well in school. It works really good. And he goes, you really think that praying to these pictures is going to make you do well in school? And honestly, all of us, after class, we were concerned for his soul. We are like, this guy's, gonna hell. This guy's in, like, he's a heathen. Oh, it was absolutely, I mean, amazing. And so... Another story that's really interesting. So, so the Armenian school is run by the church. So the, the the bishop comes every year in the beginning of the year and he sits down and he gives a lecture. And it's always the same lecture. I mean, you know, you would expect the guy to say something profound, something really religious, spiritual. No, it's the same picture. He goes, you know, could you imagine a doctor going to see his patients without his medical bag? Could you imagine a soldier going to the military without his gun? Well, likewise. Could you imagine you coming to school without your books? Make sure you bring your books. What is this? This is ridiculous. Like by, by the time I was seven, I'm thinking this is getting old. Y'all have and graduated to the pictures, the game, the system, the book stuff. That's, that's, you, know, the, you don't have to remind us about that. <laughs> so, so eventually, um, the other thing that happened, because this is a, a, a religious school, shall we say, we would go to, they would take us in, on certain holidays, they would take us to the church for services for something significant happening during the week. And so we would go to, we would get in the bus, we'd go to church and we would have the service and there'd be almost nobody there except for this one lady, very frail looking, very petite, very small, very old. And she would be like really into this religious service. And she would have like her scarf on, she would be praying and just really seeking after God. And my impression of that as a little kid was like, she's weak. She can't handle life. That she needs, she needs to do this, this groveling and this worship to just survive for her day. Like that's not a, that's not attractive. Huh. That was just my impression of, of huh. you know, yeah, religious fervor equated yeah. to weakness of yeah. character or just you know, fortitude. Let's say, yeah, and and then we would be given communion at the end. And and the in the Armenian system, right? There's the chalice, and then the guy would take the bread and dip it, yeah. and then he would stuff his fingers in your mouth. I mean, it's just, yeah, amazing. So we would take this um, bread and we'd show up to the the, the uh, school bus to go back to school. And uh, somebody looked at me and said, "What? where's your, where's the bread? And I said, I ate it. So what do you mean you ate it? He gave you a big piece, didn't he? Yeah. Well, you, did you chew it? Well, well yeah, I chewed it. You chewed the flesh of Jesus? Are you nuts? <laughs> and we are having this very deep, very serious theological debate about can you chew the flesh of Jesus or can you not? And and I, I was just really distraught by this. And I, I was like, okay, I, so, so what do you do? You're supposed to leave it in your mouth until it just dissolves? Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, and the other thing too, religiously speaking, when you take communion, you're supposed to fast. So you're not supposed to eat anything. And my parents never really wanted to adhere to that rule. But then at some point when you get old enough and you're, there's peer pressure, you say that you fast and you can't lie. You're like, yeah, I definitely fasted. So some mom, I'm not having breakfast. I can't do it. We're getting communion. And you go to church. And of course you're hungry. You haven't eaten for like 14, 15 hours and you faint. And I've done this several times to the point where people were concerned about my health as a, as a like, you know, what's, what's wrong with this kid? Like I fast, I'm, I'm taking this seriously. <laughs> but honestly, Paul, I, I had no idea who really Jesus was except hmm. the title son of God. And I was hmm. like, so what, what does that even mean? I, so, and, and, you know, I, I remember having the altar and then there would be a picture of him on the right side being um, on, on a crucifix on a crucifix and on the, on the left side with the tomb, you know, uh, not a not a stone rolled away, but but a, an actual tomb on the ground lifted, and then the the Roman soldiers in in, in terror, and then him ascending. I'm like, I, what does that have to do with me? I don't I don't understand. Why are we Why are we here? Why are we doing this? And I also remember that uh, the altar was like really holy and really serious, and you don't mess with that place. You don't run around there. You take it very very seriously. And one day they decided to do foot washing. And in the Armenian church, when you do foot washing, you don't do it for the adults, you do it for the kids. Hmm. So the kids are supposed to go up there, sit in the chair and do their, you know, get their feet washed by the priest and then you move on. And it's like a wonderful thing. Okay, so first experience doing this, I'm 12 years old. I go up there, I am so nervous because I am in the, what they call Holy of Holies. This is a very serious place. You don't really, you know, like, I feel like I'm just going to, you know, ruin something and, and ruin my life and 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 it's going to be awful for me. So I'm really nervous and I'm acting very nervous and I, I'm trying to figure out what am I supposed to do? Where do I sit? When do I sit? And the priest who's getting frustrated at me goes, what's wrong with you, kid? Are you, are you, are you, are you, um, in, our, in Armenian, we, we use the word bagasses as in like, are you, like, are you diminished mentally? Is that, is, some, is there something wrong with you? It's a very insulting word. And I'm thinking, we're in the Holy of Holy. You're right in front of the altar. This is where you do the whole communion prayer thing. And you just insulted me in the presence of the Holy of Holies. This is, this is, I, this is unbelievable. So this is my understanding of religion, you know, very superficial, very, yeah. uh, very much, you know, superstitious, yeah. uh, very much of like, uh, you know, rub the genie and then some yeah. good things will happen. Yeah. You type of a uh, type yeah. of religion. So that, that's my understanding of of religion. And eventually, I go to college, and um, where'd you go to college? American University in Cairo. Okay. After high school, and and the thing about the thing about you know being by myself and being uh not not having a lot of very close friends and so on is that you do a lot of people watching. You know, in, in Egypt, everything is always busy. So. Everybody lives in apartment buildings and we live on the third floor. So, you know, sometimes when I'm just, my brain's fried doing too much schoolwork, you go out to the balcony and you watch people. And it's just fascinating what you see and what you learn. And, you know, especially during like the, the Atai Eid, where they, the Eid, where they, they slaughter the lamb, uh, you know, the, the Muslims, you know, do the sacrifice and so on. You see like all kinds of like 
people slaughtering animals right in front of you, right, like right there in the open. And then they would butcher the thing in the, in the front of the building. And then all the poor people would come and they would give, hand them bags of, of the meat. Cause you're supposed to, part of the deal is you're supposed to give to the poor on that particular day. Oh. It's fascinating to grow up watching that, you know, always look forward to that time to like see this happen. And one year, this one uh, house in the corner was really, guy was really wealthy. So he butchered an actual bull. Like he, they brought a cow and they butchered the cow and, in in an urban area, in out in the, the urban open, area, right in the open, and 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 then you would take the culture is that you take the blood of the animal and you would dip your hands in it, and then you would put the 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 handprints on the wall of your house, on your car, on your you know just to bless everything, and so you yeah. would see like just handprints of blood. Just can you imagine over. doing this? I would I would I would I've been talking in my church. I said you know because I'm trying to give an illustration. I said you know if I put a pile of rocks mm -hmm. and some fire. And I took like a goat and I killed it right at the corner of Florin Road and Amherst here. I think the city would first cite me and then jail me. I mean, yeah. if I start putting yeah. handprints of blood on the church, people people would be people would be calling my city council person say, I don't know what's going on in that place, but you got to send somebody over there and make him stop. Right. <laughs> because you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so one so one year while I'm doing my people watching, you know. I noticed that in the building across from me, there's this really beautiful blonde girl in the balcony, right on my right on my level. Too far for me to actually see what her face looks like, but you know, by the figure I know, yeah, she's pretty. So, you know, always get looking looking forward to seeing this girl, you know, 16, 17 years old, of course. And and um and eventually, you know, I, I go to college and uh I study engineering at the American University in Cairo. And I do theater. I, I minor. I, I don't minor in theater. I just take some theater classes and I do some theater stuff because I enjoy theater, did it in school and so on. I was pretty good at it. And I'd get all these like really nice leading roles uh, at the American University in Cairo. And eventually I did a play uh, where my love interest is this, uh, this girl who is um, half Norwegian, half Egyptian. And, you know, we're getting to know each other and, and she's pretty cool and everybody's really nice. And it's kind of interesting, the contrast between my engineering friends and my theater friends, you know, very different people. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more girls in one side than the other. You right? better believe it. And, uh, and eventually um, we discover that we live across the street from each other. And remember that girl that um, yeah, 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 right yeah, across yeah, the window yeah, turns yeah, out to yeah. be her. All right. Now, in that type of environment, in, in that type of, uh, you know, in, in environment that I grew up in, one of the things that, you know, in the absence of a religious kind of framework, one of the things that happens is that your a relationship with your spouse becomes really important and necessary for surviving. Hmm. Uh, you know, my grandfather and my grandmother's relationship was just really beautiful and their love story is really nice. And then my mom and my dad's love story is also very, very nice. And and everybody, like all my friends, you know, their parents are like how they met and how like who knew who and what the circumstances were. Just, you know, romance was in the air. You know, I, I don't know if you remember the 1970, there was a famous movie called Love Story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where do I begin song, you know, yeah. reminded me a lot that where do I begin song reminded me a lot of the video you had about was it Ernest Becker or something like that? Yeah. Uh, where, you know, the the relationship between a man and a woman becomes sort of like a deistic relationship where yeah. you're looking for your life fulfillment through this person. So I grew up thinking that that's my mission in life is to find my spouse. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, 
for a while I thought it was going to have to be an Armenian girl because that's what my you know um, parents would really like and my grandparents would love that. And um, eventually we we I start to have this really deep emotional connection with this girl across the street. Problem is she's Muslim. Her dad's Muslim, so she's Muslim. So her and I can't have a relationship because I would have to be Muslim for me to have a relationship with her. Right. And we're getting pretty serious in this relationship to the point where I am seriously considering, you know, it's just something on your passport. Like that in the Egyptian passport, it says either Christian or Muslim on your passport oh. as part of your identity. Huh. Yeah. And so yeah, what's the difference? Egyptian, Muslim, same thing. But I knew the cost. And the cost was that I would probably be disowned by my grandparents yep. and I would be disowned by my parents. Maybe my parents, I, I could win over over time, but definitely yeah. my grandparents would not have any of it. Yep. Even though my grandfather grew up in sort of the world where, you know, he's doing a lot of work in, in mosques. You know, he's, he's trapped at this point, yeah. he's getting better and better at his craft. He's traveling all over the middle East, working on mosques, putting chandeliers up in the mosques and, and, uh, and in, and in some churches as well, and in hotels and casinos and so on. I mean, really like impressive work. And all of his employees are Muslim. Some are maybe Coptic Christians, but majority are Muslim. And so you you can't really live a life where you say, yeah, Christianity, Jesus, way, truth, and life. No other way to God except through me. Uh, you, you, you kind of say, well, we're all children. It's all Abrahamic faiths. We're all worshiping the same God. And that's the, the atmosphere that I grew up in, where yep. you say, we all worship the same God. That's yep. just the reality of it. Yep. And, and so to me, it's like, it's all the same God, right? You just, I mean, that's yep. how I grew up. So what difference does it make? And so um, as things progressed and things got more and more serious, then it became like, well, well we, we have to, you know, we want to get married. How do we do this? And I can't really live in Egypt and get married. So there was an opportunity for me to come to the U.S. as an exchange student. And my mom always wanted that because my mom had lived in the U.S. because her side of the family had immigrated to the U.S., and part of the deal was that my dad and mom connected after they had after she had moved and then got married and she moved back and all of my uh, family relatives on my, my dad's side and my mom's side they all lived all over the U.S. So growing up, I was always visiting the U.S. in the summers. My, all my summers were spent in either New York or in Florida or in Texas or in um, uh, San Diego, just all over uh, the the place in the U.S. It was it was great fun see my cousins and aunts and uncles and so on and my mom's parents my grandparents on my mom's side so this is my life i'm i'm living partly in the us partly in egypt and you know uh, and i'm really popular in school because i come back with all the american candies you know and share it with kids and if i if if i hadn't known any better cuz you see a lot of american like you know youtube channels about being entrepreneurial and kids selling their candy if i had done that to my egyptian friends i would have been the most horrible person you know, to not be willing to share the candy, but to sell it to them, I, I would be the most horrible person. And my parents would have been mortified that I'm making money <laughs> off of my friends. You know, so the culture is so different here. It's all about make as much as you can take advantage of whoever you take advantage of there. It's buy friends, make friends with the stuff that you have, bless others. So the, eventually what happens is, um, I have an opportunity to go to the U.S. and this is perfect. I can go become an exchange student for a year, maybe settle there, get an internship. Um, this would have been my junior year in, in college. So get an internship, maybe make a life. So I leave in June of 2000 and 
two to come to the U.S., which is a very interesting time because 9-11 had just happened. Yeah. And I remember exactly where I was in 9-11. And uh, I was in a theater class. It was around three o'clock in the afternoon because of the time change. And all of a sudden we hear massive cheering and yelling outside of the classroom. The, wow. the American University in Cairo is in downtown Cairo, very near Tahrir Square, where the revolution and stuff, Arab Spring happened. So I'm hearing all these cheers, all Allah, Akbar, Allah, Akbar, what's going on? And of course, the uh, the teacher, the theater teacher was an American woman, and she um, somebody came in to grab her and let her know what happened. And it's very emotional, of course, for her. And we are terrified. I mean, we're we're all, you know, considered to the like all we're we're not necessarily a lot of the my classmates were 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 Egyptians, you know, Arabs, right. just like but but we're considered, you know, Western to the right. average, of course, because we're you're going to the American University Cairo. in Cairo. And so, you know, part of like very for for a split second, we were like, are we in danger? Was is this a revolution happening? What's going on? And I called my dad and I'm like, Dad, uh, do I need to do I need to figure out how to come home as quickly as possible? Are you going to go home as quickly as possible? And and my brain is starting to think, how do I yeah, try yeah. to go from downtown Cairo to my house without having to depend on main roads and to kind of be incognito more? And right. he goes, oh, your son, you're, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. It's okay. Um, it's not fun what happened. It's not good what happened. It's pretty terrible. We feel terrible, but I, I think we're safe. Okay, good. Um, but... It's an exchange student program. So what's supposed to happen is one person is supposed to come to the American University in Cairo while I go to um, the U.S. And that never, the, the the person who was supposed to take my place never did. And thankfully for Penn State, um, they said, come anyway. It's okay. So that was wonderful. So I, I come to the U.S. And, uh, and I stay in, in New York with my aunt and uncle, my mom's aunt and uncle. Uh, in from June to about August until school starts. And the thing about New York, and the reason I, I came early is because I'm trying to get my citizenship because I have a green card because my mom is an American, but I can't really become an American. Rule changes that, you know, I have to go through a naturalization process. Eventually, what happens is, again, I'm in a very serious relationship with this girl. I would like to become Muslim. I need to learn something about Islam. I mean, I can't just be like, whatever, I'll sign whatever. Um, so I got to learn stuff and I buy these books and I go to the, in Jamaica, New York, which is right next to Queens. There's yep. a very big Islamic area. I don't yep. know if you've been there, but like, you know, it's, it feels like a little Cairo. It's crazy. Uh, walk in there to Islamic, uh, Islamic kind of bookstore type of thing. And I buy a couple of things. I buy Quran and I'm reading through it and I'm terrified, absolutely terrified. And, and there's a small voice in me that says, you know, you know nothing about Christianity and you're learning all this reading about Islam. Maybe just to be fair, you ought to, you ought to just learn a little bit about Christianity. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. So I go to uh, Fifth Avenue to Barnes and Noble, the biggest Barnes and Noble in the country. And I'm expecting to just go to the Bible section and pick one up and leave. Should take 30 seconds. I get to the Bible section. It's the length of a stinking football field. Yeah. <laughs> how are there so many Bibles, different Bibles, different widths and sizes and dimensions? How is this possible? And not, I, so, I, not so the Quran, you know, there's just supposed to be just, just one. Right, <laughs> right. 
I literally spent four hours looking through everyone and I and I'm going through like this is too much information. Process of elimination. Get the biggest thing you can because you want to make sure everything is in it. You don't want any Bibles missing half the, you know, the good stuff or whatever. <laughs> so I, I walk out of there with like a big hunk of Bible. And it's a it's an Aramaic Bible. It's like translated from the language Jesus spoke, it says. I still have that copy. It's a horrible translation, but it's you know, still. All right, fine. I'm reading through this. And of course, I do what everybody does, start a Genesis. And I am not understanding this at all. What is going on with people getting raped and people killing everybody and God saying, get rid of them and eliminate them. And I'm, what is this? What, where is the good Christians that like I grew up with and all the nice stuff? Uh, so I'm super confused at this point and I eventually make it to Penn state and, um, I'm, I'm going to the, um, I'm going to the, um, dorms and right by the food court area, there's a table outside a raffle table. There's an American football, some Penn state shirts, a boom box. I wanted the American football. I, was like, I need an American football. So, so I go to the thing. I say, what do I have to do to win this American football thing? And I'm like, Oh, fill the survey. It's a raffle. Oh, perfect. So I fill this out and it says, would you like to discuss uh, with a group of people uh, the Bible? I said, yeah, this actually is amazing. Some, finally, somebody to help Earth me understand. One <laughs> and, and so I fill this thing out and I don't put my phone number. I only put my email. And um, a few days later, I get an email that says, unfortunately, you did not win anything. But you did say you were interested in talking about the Bible. Would you be willing to meet with in a group and so on? And I said, I emailed back and I said, I don't really want to meet in a group. I want to meet one-on-one -on -one with somebody. Um, and I, but I want to make sure that I can ask questions because I'm really, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to be lectured at. I want to be able to ask questions. So if you're willing to have me ask questions, then let's, let's talk. So I sit down, I, I, I meet somebody at this particular location. Now, my name is Asho Tumayas. I'm sticking to my real original name in the beginning of me coming to the U.S. My name is Asho Tumayas and I am going to stick with that. I'm not changing it for anybody. Now, this guy is expecting to see a Middle Eastern looking guy, somebody foreign, like not a regular old white vanilla dude, right? So I sit there at the chair where we're supposed to meet and I see this guy who really looks like he's looking for somebody. He's wearing like regular jeans and a Penn State sweater. And, and I'm thinking, this guy's going to tell me about God? Where's the clothes? Where's the, where's, where's the dignity? Like where? Where's the collar, man? Like, what? what is this? Who Who are you to tell me about God? So finally, I'm like, you're looking for Asha Tumans? Yes, that's me. And he gets upset with me. Like, he looks at me like, I've been having walking around you for 15 minutes. I'm like, yeah, I was trying to figure out if like, <laughs> tell me about God. So we meet for like several weeks and I'm just peppering him with all kinds of, you know, questions. Um, And, and my big questions are, okay, help me understand this. Christianity, Islam, is it all one God? Is it not? You know, what, what's going on here? And what about the poor five-year-old kid in Saudi Arabia who dies not hearing the so-called gospel of yours? What, what about what about his fate? Um, what, what's, what's going on with this whole, um, uh, what's going on with this whole like American Christianity versus, you know, Armenian Christianity? I mean, is, is there going to be like different sections of countries in 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 heaven because you know it's like the armenian church we're part of the armenian church and i'm like this doesn't make any sense like we're gonna we're just gonna have like an armenian quarter in heaven is that what it is or is it? so 
I have all these weird questions and he very patiently goes through and answers, tries to answer them. Meanwhile, I'm still reading about Islam. I'm under, trying to understand it. I'm, you know, talking with my girlfriend on a daily basis and, you know, things are going great until about uh, October. Um, I get the phone call where she says, you know, maybe this thing isn't going to work out anymore. <laughs> I was changing my whole life, for you, you know, willing to like, heaven and sweat like a, a disown get disowned by my own family changing my religion <laughs> and you just think eh we're good <laughs> this is crazy this is insanity <laughs> and it wasn't like i was ignoring her or i was like posting pictures with other there was nothing to post back then facebook hadn't been invented till 04 but you know there was nothing like i'm i'm you know, not responding to her or anything like that. Very attentive, very loving, very kind. Uh, but just, you know, eh, we're good. We're done. So that really threw me for a tizzy for a while. You know, for a whole month, I'm like, I'm just confused. I'm so confused. Here I am, just absolutely willing to give my life, lit just literally give my life to this person, you know. Um, and she was just willing to just say, yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> Uh, so just bizarre, just absolutely bizarre. So confused. Um, and it, it, I think it was it was during that time where eventually uh, Dave Hatfield, the guy who was reaching out to me, he was the campus pastor of of the of a particular church group. He eventually said, you know, I spent a lot of time answering your questions, but I think it would be helpful if we start actually going through the Bible and, and looking at some verses so you can see it straight from the Bible and you can do your own reading yeah. as well. Yeah. Oh, so he sits, sits down with me and he, you know, I, I, I surrender to that and we go through the Bible study and, you know, he goes through all these scriptures about God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And, and I've never heard John 3.16. And I know for a lot of like even nominal Christians or deconstructed Christians. That seems, sounds really weird. How do you, how are you raised as a Christian? Took religion classes in Arabic because you had to take religion as part of the Egyptian educational curriculum. Took religion classes in Arabic and Armenian and never heard of John 3.16 before. Uh, but it's it's the culture. It's it's a different kind of format where you say, well, you're part of the church. You were baptized. You're in. You're good. There's nothing to worry about anymore. I mean, you know, just be a good person. Be moral. Um, I knew a lot of the parables, the prodigal son, all those things, but it was a very moralistic sort of teaching as opposed to a, what's the spiritual significance? Um, almost very little about the, the Old Testament, almost knew nothing about the Old Testament mm -hmm. at all. You know, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, we'd read about Daniel and prophecies about Jesus, Jeremiah, and, you know, and, and Moses talking about how I want everybody to prophesy and, you know, just no connection. I I don't get any. I don't get any of this. I don't understand why this matters. Why is this important? Why do Why do I need to give it any attention? You know. Um. But after this breakup, a lot of these verses that he would kind of read and I would read and they would just go over my head. A lot of them started to sound different. A lot of them started to kind of make me realize that. There's a there is a God who loves me personally, not just humanity. Uh, there's a God who has a personal vested interest in what becomes of me, and I thought that's that's interesting. And I 
And it finally clicked one day that this adoration, this love that I had for this person was the kind of adoration and love that no human could hold. And she couldn't handle it. And it wasn't because there was anything wrong with that person. It's just that a human is not meant to hold this devotion, this, this level of self-sacrifice and, and this absolute, you know, I mean, you know, let's be honest. I leave Egypt. I come to the U.S. I'm in a university in the U.S. Let me tell you, the women in the U.S. are a lot prettier than women in the Middle East. I'm sorry. It's just... <laughs> You know, uh, and, and <laughs> a lot more and, women watching this from the U.S. than the Middle East. So I think we're safe. All right. Good. <laughs> and so it's very natural. I mean, a lot a lot of Middle Eastern men go through this, by the way. And this happens in Europe, too. Right. It's very natural. I mean, the assumption is, unfortunately, the assumption is that that uh, Western women are easier. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why there's a lot of all this mess happening from, you know, Eastern men coming to the West is they assume that like, I should just be able to like, I want and be given, yeah. you know, and, and I never really was even tempted by any of the beauty that I saw or any of the, I was, I was like, I'm, I know my one, you know, and I'm dedicated to this one. Um, and, and to just kind of all that to just be dismissed uh, was weird and, and really strange. And eventually what, what happened was I finally realized that the, the love that I, I had for this human being was meant to God, that it wasn't meant for another human being, that, that my fulfillment, my sense of my desire to be fulfilled in myself, my desire to feel like I am home uh, was to be met in not just a person, um, a human being person, but, but the creator of all. And the wonder of, of that creator being willing to condescend himself, to become flesh for our sake, to bear our burdens, to suffer with us and for us, and to pay the price of, of our um, inability to ascend to God. And I always, you know, when I was in uh, high school, I had this sense of like, there has to be a God. I mean, I, you know, I read Descartes and I, I read some philosophy stuff with Plato and so on. And, and I had this sense early on that there has to be a God. But the problem was like, which God and who, who God and what God and how God. And it just felt impossible to try to climb up to this God. And I remember having this, these really simple, innocent prayers of like, God, if, there's a God, if you're real, I'd like to kind of know who exactly. And especially while I'm going through this whole Islam, Christianity, and so on. I'm like, am I doing the right thing? Am I, you know, there's this slight doubt in me of like, yeah, I'm willing to do this, but is this the right, is this the right thing to do? Right in its own sake, not just right for my well-being or whatever. Right. Right. And eventually I decided, you know what? I think, I think I need to give my life to to God. And, and, and I don't say that in an evangelistic kind of like come to the altar sense. I've never been to a church, by the way, never been to an American church at this point. Uh, this is only strictly through meeting with the one guy and reading the Bible and having this event happen. And, um, an event, I just, I, I need to give my life. I need to live life dedicated to this being and, and to worship him above all else and to hold him that's the highest thing that I can serve in my life. 
and that from that he is worthy and and you and the very first thing that i had to deal with was what about turkish people um because it was a badge of honor to hate turkey to hate everything about turkey yeah. everything that's turkish yeah. everyone that becomes that, that becomes the identity that is part of your identity yeah. and, and very quickly very quickly it was like this is not it's not possible i can't i can't do that if he was willing to forgive me i how can i and 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 if a turkish man were to say i want jesus how can i be like pay back what you did to the armenians and yeah, and yeah. who's who's the why is that person responsible for what happened to the armenians and and why does he have to pay and all all yeah. these questions came to the surface so there's a very long process of having to go through that forgiveness and yeah. understand that I can't, I, I, there's no room for me holding a personal grudge or, or having a badge of honor in my hatred to someone else um, yeah. for just having to be of a particular ethnicity. And it, that was a very serious um, and heavy thing because, you know, we, we grew up with like, if we saw anything in the market made in Turkey, we, we knew not to touch it. Wow. You never touch anything made in Turkey. You know, you yeah. never go. There was a story of my, my grandmother going on a cruise ship, uh, around the Mediterranean and my, you know, with her friends and such. And and my grandfather, of course, doesn't do those things. And she comes back and she's like, oh, it was wonderful. We stopped at Istanbul. You stopped where? Istanbul. You got off the ship? Yeah. How, how could you? Oh, it's, uh, we got all these, look at this leather jacket we got. Istanbul is known for its leather goods. We got all these leather jackets. He had, he burned those leather jackets. He wow. literally lit a match to them. He's like, there's no way. There is no way I'm taking this stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, so, um, uh, our concept as Armenians, our concept of an evangelist is someone who goes around and tries to convince other governments and other communities about the Armenian genocide and about the truth of the Armenian genocide. That is like when someone would visit our community from all around the different, yeah. that's the person that, yeah. you know, that's the person that that's the ideal that you aspire to be that if you were intellectually kind of sharp enough yeah. maybe one day you can be that that's the cause that that's is the, the cause that is the wow. is to finally have the community acknowledge the armenian genocide that's that that's that cory tenbu moment do you ever have you ever heard of the hiding place the yes, end of the book i've read it in some of my videos yeah, where yeah, you know absolutely. where her you know her sister was killed by the nazis and this yeah. and it's not just a nazi prison guard it's the nazi prison guard she remembered from her meeting comes up at one of her crusades and yeah. talks about the love of jesus even for him and she's like <laughs> right there right there there it is you killed my sister <laughs> i mean it's yeah. not it's not my ancestors it's my sister and, yeah. and i in front of me i mean i it's, it's, you can't get more personal or powerful than that wow Wow. Now, this happened about 22 years ago now. Um, it's been 22 years. And for many years, I would not share this story of my mm. conversion experience. And when I, whenever I would, I would be talking to somebody about Christianity and about serving God and loving God and, and evangelizing to them, let's say, it, it was never, you know, I, I rejected that way of talking, that, that you know, relational aspect, the the sense of like love and devotion and so on, because it was, it, it just sounded too, 
emotional to, you know, relational. Um, I was constantly more attracted to the, the more rational, the more, you know, it's, you know, it's just self-evident. It's, it's um, Romans one type of thing. You know, the, the idea that there are things that you, there are things that you have to acknowledge about creation, about the world, and you're rejecting them. And that rejection is, there's going to be consequences to that rejection, but you need to accept who God is. And and the thing that, you know, I've learned over the years as I've, as there's been more distance from that experience to today, because, you know, if it was like a year ago, six months ago, it would have been like, I'll give it six months. He'll move on, you know, yeah, yeah. but it's, it's 22 years and it's, it's yeah. pretty powerfully sustaining. And and if, you know, if we're going to talk about like, well, what happened over the last 22 years, that's a whole nother hour, but I'm not going to get into that. But the, the thing is, it's not like, you know, some emotional kind of high yeah. and we've been living off of that. There's a lot that has happened. There's a yeah. whole history over the last 22 years of, of walking with God and yeah. um, experiencing disappointment and experiencing awful things and, and still choosing to say, but God yeah. and, and wanting to continue to serve him above all else. Yeah. Uh, and, and you don't do that just because you rationally assent to an idea. You do that because there's a there's a fidelity that you have to a person yep. that 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 God became flesh and that you have a relationship with yep. with that flesh and well and sometimes when you say like God is not a super thing in the sky, part of me is like I agree with you, but he sort of is too. <laughs> yeah, that's one number one and number two. <laughs> he sort of is too. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And 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 the thing is that you know this in a very kind of rationalistic sense of, of trying to reason towards God. One thing that's really important is to understand that like, there is a falling in love aspect to, to having a relationship with God. And I, and I, I think we need to go back to that. We need to somehow include that in the vocabulary as opposed to just making the case from a, you know, this way of living, this worldview isn't really going to pay off. So okay. therefore try this worldview because it's like, you know, the, like it's the it's the best story, you know. It's like, what do you mean? What is the what do you mean? It's the best story. It, it's the creator of heaven and earth, the 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 Godhead, that that terrifying being, the 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 being who is all light, the being who would consume you in an instant, wants to have a relationship with you, and and your answer is it's a good story. No, it's it, he, if it's not for relationship, then what is it for? And and my concern is that a lot of people are trying different Christianities, let's say, for their uh, immersive experience or yeah. a world a, a worldview, the bells and the smells and the and, and, and you know the the aspects of, of of Christianity that I grew up with. It's, I said it wasn't salvific. There was nothing that saved me with that. I, I participated in the worship services. I went to them. I didn't understand anything that was said. It was it was done in old Armenian, you know, sort of like people liking the Latin mass. It's like if you know Latin, great. But if you don't know Latin, why do you like the Latin mass? <laughs> you know, um, and 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 instead, you know, you have someone who said, "Hey, God loves you." And God wants to have a relationship with you. And he went through all this trouble so that you and him can walk together. And, you know, things are probably going to work out okay for you. You live in the U.S. after all. 
but you're probably also going to go through some hell. And the question is, are you still going to continue to walk with him while you go through that hell? And one thing I've learned from you is that, you know, for the longest time, my attitude of, of, I will walk through you, I will walk with you through hell was sort of like a grit my teeth and make my head like flint sort of attitude. But I think you were the one who kind of highlighted and kept highlighting. I think it's a, it's a reformed aspect. I think uh, that it's a gift. Your ability to walk with him is a gift. That's right. That's right. That's all. It's all, it's all gift. And, and I, and, and even my ability to say, my ability to say that I, I need to worship this God. I, I need to submit to this God. I need to give him my all. That wasn't that wasn't some some rational faculty of mine that that ascended to that level of you know incredible smarts. That that's that's a gift. Just look at your story. I mean, you've got the most amazing story. I mean, just generations on down, and you're gonna you're gonna you can find this Muslim girl, and you're gonna convert, and you're gonna go to America, and you want a football. <laughs> it's gift. It's gift. It's a, it's all a gift. And, yeah. and, you know, the, and the thing is like, I'm reading through the sacrifice of praise by Herman Bovink. Yeah. And, and I've been like really diving into some, yeah. some Dutch guys, you know, Bovink is like a personal hero of mine right now. I, yeah. I love that guy. We, yeah. we went through at, at uh, with a friend of mine, we went through a, uh, the wonderful works of God, which amazing, amazing experience. But, you know, the sacrifice of, in the sacrifice of praise, he, he makes this comment that whenever the word of God is spoken, it is not. It is not just like, ah, it didn't work. It's never null and void. It, it's going to accomplish the task that it's meant to accomplish. It's either going to lead someone to uh, become alive again, to, to, to rise from the dead, literally, or it's going to harden someone. Mm. Those are the two options. Mm. It's either going to harden you or it's going to soften you to him. Mm. That's it. Mm. So this 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 notion that like, you know, Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to talk biblical language. I don't want to say the word of God. I, no, we we have to say the word of God, because it's the only thing. It is the only thing that can able that is able to separate, right? It, it's the only thing that can divide, and it's the only thing that can help people either move towards Him, mm. or harden them further. And maybe yeah. it's maybe people need to go through some hardening before they can be softened. Maybe yeah. maybe there is that level of hardening that is necessary before you finally can surrender well the irony of hardening is that it also makes people fragile and brittle and it's 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 the broken heart that you know it's the broken and contrite heart that god looks you know that god looks to i mean you see it again again in the psalms it's the it's the contrite i mean contrite is you know it's broken it's i i no longer have I know I no longer have my own resources in order to somehow willfully try to make myself. No, 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 no. It's all gift. It's gift. Yeah. <laughs> it's the broken you know, and contrite heart that he, that he. And I, ha- I have one, one comment I want to make. Recently, you had a video where you talked about, you know, parents. I have five. I have a wonderful wife and we have five children together. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, three, three, three girls and, and two boys, and they're just wonderful. And you know, you you made a comment a few a few videos ago about um, you know this idea that we can raise children and fashion them and form them into into whatever we want them to be. Yeah. 
and that, you know, uh, the, don't think that's too easy because the culture is very powerful. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I, I understand, I understand that, that, that sort of uh, pragmatic way of, of thinking that, you know, culture is important. But my, you know, my thing is like the Bible talks about children are, are arrows, you know, uh, the, ch the children are arrows that we get to release and I, I, I've been learning about, about covenant theology and um, there is something to a covenantal relationship that we have with God and that he has that relationship, not just with us individually, but with our offspring. Yeah. And there, and there's something about, I think part of the reason why I'm a Christian today is because of my grandfather's yeah. faith. Yeah. And my, you know, I, I hope one day you get to taste grandfatherhood. I hope so. Um, and and I and I think I think if you look at if Barna, I don't know if Barna even does this kind of research or analysis, but if you look at the number of children that leave the faith, my question is, what about their grandparents? Did they live near? Were they believers? Yeah. Were they close? Because I guarantee you, if if the grandparents were believers and the children were believers. I think the percentages are quite astronomically high that the grandchildren would be believers, regardless of the culture. I because you make your own culture. I think when there's, have... I think there's a lot of truth to that. But here's an irony that I know from the Christian Reformed Church: we definitely want to be faithful in in passing down our faith to our children, and for that reason, the Christian Reformed Church, or Christian Reformed schools. I mean, we we in the we practice the whole, you know. Create the bubble, create the community. We practice that. Our doctrine is also this, this, this story of faith seemingly sometimes coming out of nowhere. Sure. And and it's not, it's never out of nowhere, but it is, in, in other words, we we don't want our we don't want the catechesis of our children to become idolatrous mm -hmm. because that undermines the very thing we're trying to give to our children, which is in fact that this faith is a gift. Now, I, I appreciate the fact that there's some tension within that in terms of sort of the logic of covenant, but it's also the case that you can, you can't, you yourself as a parent can't quicken the hearts of your children. Mm -hmm. absolutely and so it's 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 that tension that i point to and yes. and what's what's interesting is that you know i think you rightly look back to the faith of your grandfather but your grandfather probably couldn't imagine the shape of your faith now it's the same faith it's the same christ it's the same gospel but you know what he he would look at you know, the elements of this and say, you know, I could not have planned that for you. In other words, Christ had a different path for you to take. And that will probably be true of your children too. And, oh, and, I, and, and, yeah. I have no doubt. I have no yeah. doubt. But I agree with you. And I think one of the things that I have seen just watching you and uh, John Van Donk and so on, you know, the, the part of the, estuary leader network group that I'm part of there's a couple of people that are dutch reformed and and I'm I'm struck by 
how similar sort of that older generation is to sort of the Armenian culture where mm. there's a sense of your Dutchness that's really strong. And yeah. and and I, I, I imagine that your children don't feel quite as Dutch as you do. Perhaps. Oh, no, no, no. And and I think and I, and I think could that be part of the reason why things are disintegrating, so to speak, not just like uh, faith wise, but also in a, in a sense of identity that 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 the American identity is sort of swallowing up the, the Dutchness. And oh, yes. Form aspect of the identity. Yeah, and and the we we actually talk about this in our pastors group. We just did at our last pastors group meeting too, because part of the irony is that in the seventies there was this whole movement to burn the wooden shoes. There's very famous banner mm -hmm. editorial about burning the wooden shoes. Yeah, I've I've heard. And you they say were it. sort of the that was sort of the progressive element to the Christian form church. Now it's that element that is saying, you know, well, what about our children? And it's like the the relationship, I mean, I think there's real resonance here in terms of the Arminian question for you in that there was a, there's both a, with, with just about everything that God gives us, it's like the serpent. Uh, it's like the serpent in the book of Numbers. God gives us something for our good and we turn it into an idol and so on one hand, the Dutchness is a gift of God's grace through culture, through generations of culture, but also that Dutchness can become an idol. And, yes. and there's always those tensions with, with the, the good things that God gives us. And, and yes. to me, in the Reformed faith, that always means be, you know, receive God's good gifts with gratitude, but take care that they, um, you know, and then the Bible talks about this often that, you know, Lord, give me enough bread that I might not be hungry and, you know, might not have to beg, but don't give me too much that suddenly the bread itself becomes where my heart rests instead sure. of resting on you alone. Because you're right. It is, it is the, 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 the Christian has open hands because we know that as human beings and, you know, the story, this multi-generational story that you told today we we can't secure our life. I mean, yeah, I, I certainly agree with you that I hope that the United States is more stable and affords the kind of freedom that, you know, we certainly enjoy as religious minorities in a big country like this. And we've seen, you know, that disappear in other places of the world. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's, it, it's always the, the, the gift of salvation is always God's gift flowing down to us. He mediates it through, you know, looking for a football and a, a visa and all these kind of strange things. But it's always gift. And and when we, in a sense, when we we got to be careful about wielding it because yeah. that's and then then I mean we're we're just so prone to idolatry all the time. It's just instinctive in our hearts. So anyway, yes, yes. No, I. I... I, I hear everything you're saying, but and I and I think that I think one of the if we're talking about meaning crisis and we're talking about the this this idea that people are struggling to find identity and to find who they are, I think an aspect of an aspect of the meaning crisis that that's important to address is is your identity as where God has placed you and in what land you reside. You know, one yeah. of, one of the things that. Um, I, I have well, studied you've got a picture of George Washington over your shoulder now that people aren't going to miss that. And, and, uh, well, you know, I have a, I have a fun, fun story about that. So I'm, I'm, uh, we're in, 
back back to Egypt again. I'm in middle school learning history, and I've always been fascinated about history. But in the Egyptian educational system, you kind of do the same history every year, but just with a little bit more detail as you get up in 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 years. And every time it was like ancient Egyptian, and then Islamic, and then and, and then the Islamic world, and then uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, and Britain, and Europe, and you know Russia, and World War One, World War Two, and modern times. And I'm like, um, teacher, uh, when do we talk about America and what happened on that side of the continent? And, and uh, he goes, America, you want to talk about America? We don't talk about babies in this class. We talk about civilizations that go back for thousands of years, not some 250-year-old country. <laughs> and, I, and I'm, you know, now this is a Middle Eastern culture, so you don't really talk back to teachers. But in my head, instantaneously, I was thinking, you know, those Americans managed to do more in 250 years than we've managed to do in a couple thousand. <laughs> a couple thousand? Egypt? I mean, Egypt yeah, you was know, old you know, when Moses yeah. was there. <laughs> right. But my point is that, like, there's a lot of interesting stuff about about that desire to, you know, the, the Neil, the guy you were talking to, the Randos conversation yeah. from a couple ones ago, where he talks about yeah. society is for law and order and community is for caring. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I struggle with is what? Well, what's my responsibility as a Christian to shape society to be responsible for society as opposed to just passively? sitting and accepting whatever, whatever, whoever decides what society ought to be. And I think there's a lot of movement in, in the Christian American Christianity that is very suspicious of, of any talk about having any voice within society. And I, I think that's a mistake. I think we have the right, we should have impact on society, the law and order part of society, not just, you know, the care for one another community aspect. Yeah. Yeah, so I agree. I agree. Well, I'm a, I'm about at my two hour mark here, Ash. I hope this was. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to get in, um, but this was. You're a great storyteller, and I really Thank hope. Uh, I really hope more people from the corner kind of seek you out. And you know, sometimes what happens when we do something like this is that uh, you know you, you you become the hot girl for a minute, and you know the the other randos conversation, the other channels want to talk to you. It certainly happened to Raj here in uh, in Sacramento. He was he was the hot girl for a minute, but um, I, well, I have I have uh, maybe two more things that I'd like to talk in in just two minutes, if I may. Okay, sure. One of the things that um, you know, one of the books that I I found several years ago is is uh, Henry Clay Trumbull. Uh, Threshold Covenant. Huh. Uh, and uh, he started the Sunday school movement, apparently, or something like that. He's like, he's pretty, pretty big deal in the Philadelphia 1800s type of guy. Um, Threshold Covenant. Yes. I've never heard of it. Really? Okay. Huh. Well, one of the things that he talks about in this, in this book is, is that the, you know, you, you had the, it reminded me, this reminded me of, of your uh, prep for Sunday sermon about the tabernacle and, and, yeah. and presence of God being in the tabernacle. But one thing that is not really talked about a lot, and and I'm mentioning this to you because of Kenneth Bailey and and how, you know, you, you introduced me to Kenneth Bailey and how he talks about uh, the middle, seeing Jesus through middle Eastern eyes. And, and one thing that um, is interesting about this threshold covenant is that he talks about how in almost every human society, every, you know, 
old human society, uh, the, their their worship of the deity or the boundaries of the deity that they worship started at the threshold. That it was like mm. you know from this line in he is our god. You know the and so the, the, you have the statue of the god or the deity in your house and and he would protect the boundaries of your land of your even Nebuchadnezzar, Nebo protector of the boundary. Right, interesting. Right. Wow. And 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 he talks about how even like in in the in the and I know we're we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, not the Passover, but it, it, in in the Passover, you know, it's, he yeah. points out how interesting it is that yeah. they, he, God never gave instruction. Moses never gave any instruction as to where to do the slaughtering of the animal. Right. But he but said where from, to put the blood was very specific. Where to put the blood is the top and the sides, but the, the actual slaughtering that happened was on the threshold because that's where everybody slaughtered the animals, was at the threshold of the temple or the house or wherever you made the sacrifice was at the threshold. I never knew that. Yes, and the cup that would be formed to dip your, you know, the hyssop or whatever it's called, the, yes. and the, to do that, that yeah. cup would have been dug in the dirt of the threshold, not like a, you know, bring a bowl here under the neck of the animal. And so where you would pull the blood. And, and so, and the thing is, when he talks about Passover, oh. a lot of people, a lot of the messages I've heard, Passover is described as like, you know, God sparing that house, like passing yeah. over it. Yeah. But like, no, Passover is passing over the threshold and being in the house. And he says, when you look at how Jesus talks about, I am the door, anyone who comes through me will live. And he talks about how he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and be with you. He's referring back to the Passover where Jesus will, where God, the Godhead will come and live with you. Interesting. I'd, I'd never heard of any of this. This is fascinating. And, and so I'm, the reason I'm bringing it up to you is because I'm like, why haven't, why aren't people, more people talking about this? And and is this, is this guy really off his rocker? I ne I'd never really heard reasonable of this. To me. <laughs> I'd never heard of any of this. This is fascinating. Yeah, the, the book's probably been out a while, huh? I mean, it's an older eighteen eighty something. Yeah, eighteen ninety six. Published in Edinburgh. Huh, it'll probably be in public domain. Absolutely. That's but anyway, cool. so my point is this: um, it's it's the season of Christmas, and you know, um, I, I'm I'm reading through this this small book of uh, Charles Spurgeon. Um, who famously never really celebrated much of Christmas, but he did do a lot of sermons around Christmas. And there, there's a section, you know, if I may, I'd like to, you know, kind of close with this, uh, where he talks, where he talks to us about who this Jesus is. And I think it's a, it's an apt sort of ending for what I've been talking about. And he says, "Oh man, God comes to you in the form of one like yourself. Do not be afraid to draw near to the gentle Jesus." Do not imagine that you need to be prepared for an audience with him or that you must have the intercession of a saint or the intervention of a priest or minister. Anyone could have come to the babe in Bethlehem. The horned oxen, methinks, ate of the hay of, on, on which he slept and feared not. It is the terror of the Godhead which oftentimes keeps the sinner away from reconciliation. But see, the Godhead is graciously concealed in that little babe who needed to be wrapped in swaddling bands like any other newborn child who feareth to approach him. Yet is the Godhead there, 
my soul, when thou canst not for very amazement stand on the sea of glass mingled with fire, when the divine glory is like a consuming fire to thy spirit, and the sacred majesty of heaven is altogether overpowering to thee, then come thou to this babe and say, Yet God is here, and here can I meet him in the person of this dear Son, in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Oh, what bliss there is in the incarnation of Christ, as we remember that therein God's omnipotence cometh down to man's feebleness, and infinite majesty stoops to man's infirmity. Beautiful. Please, please, a lot of people are comfortable with the label agnostic. And you cannot stand before the Godhead of the universe and just nonchalantly in a very blasé sense say, ah, I'm agnostic. He came to be with you. He wants to sup with you. He wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to come over the threshold. He wants to come over the threshold. He wants to live in, in your heart. He, and he wants you to live in him. And, and that is how we become alive. That is how we find our meaning. Amen. Amen. That's Thank great. You. That's a great, that's a great way to end, Ash. That's a great way to end. Thank you for, I, thank you for being so persistent. You've been persistent for a while. I know. <laughs> it's a good time to do it though, with the wonderful season to remember the gift that has come to us. If people want to get in touch with you, uh, Twitter or what's the best way? Yeah, Twitter's fine. Um, I'm not very active on Twitter. I I, I try to I try I try to uh, not do a lot of social media stuff, but yeah, Twitter is probably an easy way to get for people to get a hold of me. But um, I you know, I I don't know how I I'm, are you still recording? I can stop. Well, yeah, why don't you stop real quick? Because I'd okay. like to do something else. All right.